And, and so here are some categories. In a category of sports, if I said basketball, who would you think of as the greatest of all time? Michael Jordan, of course, boxing, Muhammad Ali, tennis, maybe Federer, Serena Williams, track and field, fastest man alive, Usain Bolt, the lightning bolt, that guy got up to 28 miles per hour on foot running, swimming. Michael Phelps, all the gold medals he won. Okay, what about football? It probably have to be Tom Brady. But there's other categories besides just sports. You can have goats in the field of science. So in physics, who comes to mind? Yeah, Albert Einstein equals MC squared. Astronomy. Yeah, Galileo or more contemporary, Carl Sagan would be to electrical engineering. Tesla, Nikola Tesla, probably the greatest of all time. We're still understanding some of the brilliant ideas that he had a long time ago. If you're into monkeys, primatology, probably Jane Goodall. These are all people who... In any given field, they're widely recognized, not just as good or great, but the greatest of all time. But what does greatness look like in God's eyes? Who would God say are the greatest of all time? I don't know if any of those people would be on God's list. Jesus said this. He said, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. God has a very different idea of greatness. True, true greatness is defined by God is someone who is humbly serving others. And so this morning, as we get into this book of 3 John, it's going to be, it's a letter that is written to a man that you maybe never heard of. His name is Gaius. He wasn't an apostle, he wasn't a prophet, he wasn't a priest. Some might say he was just like an average Joe. But here's the thing, Gaius was faithful. He was faithful, he was working behind the scenes, humbly and obediently serving the people of God, just as God called him to do. And this is what greatness looks like in God's eyes. So this morning, as we are getting close to the end of our series in 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, the title has been Absolute Certainty. And this morning, we're going to be in the book of 3rd John. We'll cover the first half today and the second half next week and, and wrap up the series. And the message title this morning is going to be Absolute Certainty that Some Will Be Faithful. Next week, we're going to see that some will wander, but some will be faithful. And we're looking for three parts in the outline. Healthfulness, not helpfulness, but healthfulness. Faithfulness in verses 3 and 4. And finally, fruitfulness in verses 5 through 8. So it's only eight verses long. It's half of the letter. And I want to start just by reading through the text, and then we'll dig into it deeper. So 3 John, beginning in verse 1, 
it reads, and I'm in the NIV 1984, it reads, The elder, to my dear friend Gaius, whom I love in the truth, dear friend, I pray that you may enjoy good health and that all may go well with you, even as your soul is getting along well. It gave me great joy to hear that some brothers, to great joy to have some brothers come and tell about your faithfulness to the truth and how you continue to walk in truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Dear friend, you are faithful in what you are doing for the brothers, even though they are strangers to you. They have told the church about your love. You will do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. It was for the sake of the name that they went out, receiving no help from the pagans. We ought, therefore, to show hospitality to such men so that we may work together for the truth. This is God's word. We want to dig in and we want to understand it and apply it to our lives. And so we'll begin this first section in verses 1 and 2 where we're going to look at healthfulness. Verse 1 begins, the elder to my dear friend Gaius, whom I love in the truth. So this is another personal letter, just like 2 John was. 2 John was a very personal letter written to the chosen woman and her children. This one is written to a man named Gaius. And again, you probably, you're not going to find that name on a list of popular baby names, I don't expect. Not today anyway, but back at the time, in the Roman world, it was one of the 20 most popular names for baby boys, Gaius. And we, we know nothing about this man other than what we have in this short letter. But it does tell us a lot about him. He clearly shared a close relationship with John because he addresses him as my dear friend Gaius, whom I love in the truth. It was a very personal relationship. This week I was counseling with a man who I met for the first time on Thursday. And we come from very different backgrounds. He's black, I'm white. He grew up in South Chicago. I grew up in San Diego. He spent some time in prison. I've never been arrested. We've just come from very different backgrounds and had very different experiences growing up. But as he began to share his testimony with me, and in particular, as he started talking about his struggles and, and the deep love that he has for God and his word, I realized just how much we have in common. We have the same creator. We have the same savior. We have the same spirit within us. And he described for me a day in 2020, he called it his day of resurrection, when the Lord broke through and saved him. And everything in his life changed. And now he views the entirety of his life through the lens of scripture. Every time he talked about a situation, he related to someone in the Bible. This was like Joseph when he did this. This was like that. He'd talk about his own failures. And he'd say, you know, I was, I was rebelling against God. He saw everything the way God sees it with a biblical view. And so... As we talked through just the struggle that he's facing now, and as we looked at the word of God together, that word held power for him, just as it does for me. 
It brought tears to his eyes. As we went to scripture, he got out his notebook and he started writing it down. He took it to heart. He received it as it truly is. The perfect and powerful word of God. It made a big impact on him because he believed the truth. And what I found is he and I share that same truth. And as we're talking together, even though I just met him on Thursday, I felt this deep love for him because we shared that same truth. The love was rooted in the truth that we shared, the truth of who God is, the truth of what he's done for us, and the truth of what he wants of us in our lives. And so this shared truth created this immediate bond. I felt like he was a longtime friend. And again, I just felt this deep love for this man. And this is what I think John is speaking of when he writes in verse 1, to my dear friend Gaius, whom I love in the truth. Do you have people that you love in the truth, that share that same truth? That should be our relationship with our brothers and sisters in Christ, the ones that we know. And so he says in verse 2, Dear friend, I pray that you may enjoy good health and that all may go well with you, even as your soul is getting along well. Now what I like about this first verse, or this second verse, is that it talks about all types of health. Physical, social, and spiritual health. Did you notice that? It says first, I pray that you may enjoy good health. That's talking about good physical health. And then it says, and that all may go well with you. When he says all may go well with you, he's talking about like social, relational, financial health. All these things. He's praying that these would go well with this man Gaius. The, the New King James Version says, I pray that you may prosper in all these things. That's like our general well-being, relationships, business, employment, finances. He's praying that all of this would go well for him, that he would be healthy in these areas. And then it says, even as your soul is getting along well, well, that's speaking about his spiritual health. Paul is hoping, even praying, for the well-being of Gaius, physically, socially, financially, and spiritually. So what do you take away from a verse like that? For me, it says that it's not wrong to want to be healthy in all of these areas of life. And to even pray for our health in our life and in the lives of others. It's modeled for us here in scripture. But, there's a big caveat, our primary focus, the first priority in our lives has to be our spiritual health. Health in all these other areas flows from our spiritual health. Now I'm not saying that if your faith is strong then you'll be healthy, wealthy, happy, not talking about a prosperity gospel, but I am saying that our physical and social and our financial health also matter to God. Just not as much as our spiritual health, but they do matter. And it's not wrong to pray about these things, to desire to be healthy in these other areas of our life. 
Think about this. When God allows us to experience trials in these other areas, in our finances, employment, relationships, what do you think his primary purpose is in all of those trials? I think it's to strengthen our spiritual health. It's to draw us closer to him, to strengthen our faith, to help us keep our eyes on what matters most, to give us opportunities to glorify him, to share his love with others, to point others to him. Now, God doesn't necessarily cause all these trials, but he does allow them, and he uses them to grow us spiritually. Our spiritual health is number one. Everything God does has a spiritual purpose. After all, think about what Jesus said. What good does it do a man to gain the whole world yet forfeit his very soul? So I like that John is praying about all these things in Gaius' life. Because we can easily lose a right perspective on these things. We can get, for instance, we can, we can allow our physical health or our family or our business to take priority over our spiritual health, can't we? We can get it out of balance. Or we can even feel that if we're super spiritual, we won't care about our health or take time for any of the pleasures of life. Both of those would be wrong. See, this would be like the two extremes of hedonism and asceticism. Hedonism is the pursuit of pleasure and self-indulgence as a first priority. We know that's wrong. That's a form of idolatry. It's worshiping ourselves and our own pleasure. But it would also... Asceticism would also be wrong. That would be to say that it's, it's like a form of extreme self-denial. It's denying ourselves almost any form of worldly pleasure so as to achieve some higher spiritual plane. Monasticism is similar to asceticism. We, we can't enjoy any of these other things because we got to be super spiritual. Both of these are wrong. And so in this verse, God shows us this balance. You know, God provides many things. In fact, all things for our enjoyment. Let me read you 1 Timothy 6.17. It says, Command those who are rich in the present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, and listen to this, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. We don't have to feel guilty about enjoying the things that God has blessed us with, provided he's our first priority and that we're generous with those things and that we receive them with thanksgiving. But it's not wrong to enjoy these other blessings. So John prays for Gaius' physical health and he prays that all may go well with him. Now, if you were praying that prayer for us today, what would that look like? That all would go well for him. I tried to just think through what that might be. I would say that relationally, it would be praying that our relationships would be healthy, meaningful, characterized by love and trust and mutual support for one another, that our relationships would be God-centered. I think that would be healthy vocationally. We could pray that our employment and our business endeavors would be fulfilling and purposeful, that they'd be aligned with biblical values. 
financially. It might look like stability, sufficiency, wise stewardship. That we wouldn't be burdened by excessive debt or financial strain. These are not wrong things to desire and even to pray for in our lives and in the lives of others we know. But we have to realize that these things flow from our spiritual health, from the quality of our relationship with the Lord. That has to be number one. So here's one more thought before we move on. What if, what if our physical health was in the same state as our spiritual health? What condition would we be in? Would we be dead? On life support? Ailing? Or would we be healthy and strong? Even buff? What would our physical health look like if it mirrored our spiritual health? I think it's a good thing to consider. So I just really like this perspective as I was meditating on this text. It gives us a picture of healthfulness in all areas of our lives. So let's look secondly then at faithfulness in verses 3 and 4. It gave me great joy to have some brothers come and tell about your faithfulness to the truth and how you continue to walk in the truth. I want to, before we break that down more, I want to establish a couple points up front. First of all, it is possible to have faith and yet not be faithful. We can have genuine saving faith and still not be living faithfully. Have you ever thought about that? Faith and faithfulness are related, but they're not the same. Faith is our belief and trust in God. It's a basis of our salvation. But faithfulness, on the other hand, that refers to being dedicated, steadfast, reliable, as we live out our faith. And so God's will for us is more than just faith. What he wants for us is faithfulness. Which brings us to the second point. Our faith should grow into faithfulness. As a believer grows in their relationship with God and their understanding of his character and his will, we should increasingly reflect his faithfulness, his character in our lives. It's a sign of growth and maturity. And it's the expected goal of every believer. Now remember that faithfulness is one of the fruits of the Spirit. It's not a gift of the Spirit. It's not something you receive up front automatically when you're saved. It's a fruit of the Spirit. It's something that the, fruit, that the Spirit produces in you over time as you exercise the spiritual disciplines as you study God's word, as you draw close to him in prayer, then that fruit develops, and one of those is faithfulness. So, on a Sunday morning, the goal of our preaching is faith, but the goal of our teaching is faithfulness. There's a difference. One brings salvation, new life. The other brings growth, maturity transformation and that's that's faithfulness so let's with this in mind let's look again now at verse 3 it says it gave me great joy to have some brothers come and tell about your faithfulness to the truth and how you continue to walk in the truth these brothers came and told John about this 
Now, it says they told him about his faithfulness to the truth. Your version might not have the word faithfulness in verse 3. It might only say that they came and testified to your truth or they testified of the truth that is in you. You might not have the word faithfulness there. Faithfulness is actually not in verse 3 in the original Greek language. It's in verse 5. But the concept of faithfulness is in verse 3 as well. And that's why the NIV has also placed it there. Faithfulness in the life of a believer is tied to our obedience to the truth. It's what our obedience is based on. It's what our faithfulness is based on. The truth. Obedience. It's also how our faithfulness is measured. Obedience to the truth. You can't separate the two. In verse 3, it speaks of faithfulness to the truth. And then verses 3 and 4 both speak of walking in the truth. They're not just reading or believing the truth. That's the easy part. That's kind of what we're doing right now, isn't it? We're reading it. We're maybe agreeing or hopefully believing the truth. But this is talking about obedience to the truth. That's the essence of faithfulness. It's obedience to the truth. And I like the metaphor John uses, again, in verses 3 and 4, walking in the truth. We talked about this before. If we're walking, we're taking intentional steps. We're moving forward in an intentional direction. We're not meandering or wandering. We're not standing still. We're not sitting down. We're moving actively in a direction, intentionally, one step after another. We're walking in the truth. So, there's a lot of other ways that you could choose to walk spiritually. I listed a few of them. You could, for instance, walk in darkness. Scripture talks about that. That's where we live in sin and ignorance rather than obedience to the truth. Another would be walking in the counsel of the wicked. Remember that in Psalm 1? That's following ungodly direction or ungodly examples. Trying to conform to the pattern of the world. Yet another would be walking in the flesh. That's where we let our own sinful desires determine what we do and what direction we go. That's not walking in the truth. But John writes... It gave me great joy to have some brothers come and tell about your faithfulness to the truth and how you continue to walk in the truth. Gaius was faithful. He was committed to obediently, consistently, reliably walking in the truth. That's faithfulness. Take a look at verse 4. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. He said the same thing in his second letter to the chosen lady. He says, it has given me great joy to find some of your children walking in the truth. But here in his third letter, he refers to my children. It's not his physical children. It's his spiritual children. It's those who are born of God through his ministry. Few things bring more excitement to a family than the birth of a new baby. Would you agree? Just this Thursday, Pastor Dan and Jennifer 
they welcomed Matthew James Boyer into their family. What a parade. Now, they thought about naming him Gaius, but <laughs> I talked them out of it. I said, no, no, Gaius, that's first century Roman. Go with something more common. Matthew James Boyer. What a joy. What excitement, especially if you're familiar with some of the challenges of this pregnancy. And a bunch of you were praying for them consistently over the last year plus. And look at here. Here's this beautiful baby boy. He'll be coming home from the hospital tomorrow. What a joy. What excitement. But in a similar way, when there's new spiritual birth, when someone repents and places their faith in Christ, when they're born again, it brings excitement to a church family. Amen? It's beautiful to see, especially to those who've been ministering to them, that, that the Lord used in bringing them to that place of faith and salvation. Now, as you know, babies can't walk. Right? They can't. They can't even crawl yet. Neither can spiritual newborns. They can't walk. But as they're fed and nurtured, they begin to grow. And then they begin to walk. It might be a little shaky at first. They'll stumble in their faith. They'll fall down. But as they, as they continue to walk, they become steadily more faithful. And so this is what John is writing about, verse 4. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. See, that's the heart of a pastor or a teacher or anyone who's discipling new believers. As pastors and teachers, we can teach the truth. We can explain it. We can try to make it clear and apply it. We can tell about all the blessings of walking in the truth. We can try our best to model it, to show what it looks like to walk in the truth. But we can't make anyone walk in it. We can't make you walk in the truth. That's a choice that each one of you has to make when you go out those doors. We can't force you to do it. But man, when a report comes back, when we see or hear how you're walking in the truth, the things that you're doing that are in obedience to God's word, it's this overwhelming joy. It's a joy to know that our brothers and sisters, especially those where maybe the Lord used us in bringing them to faith, our children spiritually are walking in the truth. There's no greater joy for a pastor or teacher because this is what our lives are dedicated to. So this is what Paul is expressing. Yet the reality is, not all believers will be faithful. That's why the title of this message is Absolute Certainty that Some Will Be Faithful. Next week, it'll be Absolute Certainty that Some Will Wander. We're going to see another example in here, and it's not a faithfulness coming from a believer. It's a sad reality. The Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, he wrote, Brothers, I could not address you as spiritual, but as worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you're not re yet ready for it. Indeed, you're still not ready. You're still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere men? 
And the author of Hebrews wrote a similar thing in Hebrews 5. He said, in fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teachings about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. See, both the Corinthians and the Hebrews were being fed the truth of the word of God by the apostles themselves. They were being taught. They had faith but they weren't living faithfully. They weren't growing and maturing in their faith. They should have been mature. So why weren't they growing? What was holding them back? I want to do a little exercise. If you have a cell phone, get it out. We're going to use our cell phones in church. Get out your cell phone and bring up your camera. Your camera act. You got your phones? Bring up your camera and then flip it around to selfie mode. Okay, now take a picture of yourself. I'm going to get you guys in the background. Okay, there. Get a picture of yourself. I want you to keep it on your phone. Why are we doing this? Because now you have a picture of the greatest obstacle to your faithfulness. <laughs> it's you. God's not holding you or me back. He wants us to grow in obedience. And he's given us everything we need for life and godliness. He's given us his word. He's given us his spirit. He's given us the church and all the gifts that they have for the building up of the body. But we have to choose to be faithful. Day by day, moment by moment. We have to make it a priority. We have to choose to walk in the truth. Now I'm not at all saying that we can do it without God. We can't. But God is not going to do it without us. We have to be willing. We have to be obedient. We have to yield to the spirit he's placed in us. So the biggest obstacle to my faith is me. And the biggest obstacle to your faith is you. Not all believers who have faith will live faithfully. Now, none of us are going to be faithful all the time. We all face challenges, temptations, periods of weakness. We still stumble. And those things impact our faithfulness. None of us is perfect. But overall, our lives should be characterized by spiritual maturity, which is seen in faithfulness. Faithfulness to walk in obedience to the truth. I'm constantly encouraged by the things I see and the things I hear about so many people here at Riverside. The things that you are doing as you live faithfully in your neighborhoods, in your workplaces, in your homes. I see and hear many examples every week. I mean, even right now, we have a dozen people teaching our children the truth of God's word. 
We have probably 60 people serving on a weekly basis just to make our services and our home groups possible. Many other people serving in many other ways and that's just connected directly to the church and they go out into their communities and they sit on school boards and they go to hearings and they have backyard Bible clubs to reach out to the community. They take their faith out into the workplace. We have several guys leading or hosting a Bible study in their workplace, a secular workplace. I, I think as a church body, we do better than many churches. I'm sure we're, we beat the average. But nonetheless, we're still not all living faithfully. So let's change that. Here's what's holding us up. It's us. So, healthfulness, faithfulness, let's look finally at fruitfulness in verses 5 through 8. John writes, Dear friend, you are faithful in what you are doing for the brothers, even though they're strangers to you. They've told the church about your love. You will do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. It was for the sake of the name that they went out, receiving no help from the pagans. We ought, therefore, to show hospitality to such men so that we may work together for the truth. God is hearing about the fruit of Gaius' faithfulness. People were being blessed. The truth of God was being advanced. And God was being glorified. But notice Gaius didn't have to call attention to this himself. He didn't say, hey, John, I want you to know how much I've been doing for the church, how faithful I've been, how I'm supporting and encouraging them, and I'm giving them a place to stay. No. The brothers who were being saved were so blessed, they told the church. They couldn't keep it to themselves. They told about his love and faithfulness. And there's an important principle there. It's found in Proverbs 27, 2. And it's this. Let another person praise you and not your own mouth. Someone else and not your own lips. In other words, don't toot your own horn. Don't boast and brag about your faithfulness. If we're walking in the truth, it's going to be evident to others. We don't need to tell them what we're doing. They'll see it. So John hears about this. And look closer than at verses 5 and 6. Verse 5 says, you are faithful in what you are doing for the brothers. And then verse 6 says, they have told the church about your love. These aren't two different things. What he's doing and his love. They're one and the same. Remember, we looked at agape love in the book of 1 John. And we said it's not just feelings or sentiment. It's always action. It's demonstrated. Our love is demonstrated by what we do. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we are yet sinners, Christ died for us. That was the demonstration of his love. His sacrifice was. Our love is only seen in what we do. You can't love someone without doing something for them. You can't love them in an agape way without doing something for them. That's why John wrote in his first letter 
In 1 John 3, 17 and 18, he says, If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Then he says this, Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. That's what real love is. Agape love is always an action. So what was Gaius doing to love these brothers? It was such a mark of faithfulness that God would capture it for us where we would be reading about it 2,000 years later. What was he doing? Simple. He was supporting a group of Christian workers and extending them hospitality. He didn't even know these guys when this all started. Verse 5 says, even though they were strangers to you, but that didn't stop them because he knew the one they were serving. Verse 7 says, they were sent out for the sake of the name. They were serving the Lord and his church. And so Gaius, knowing what God says about how we should love and serve others, he opened up his home and he opened up his wallet and he supported these ministers of the truth. And in doing so, he furthered God's kingdom work on earth. It just says simple. Gaius thought, this is what God says I should do. I'll do it. It was faithfulness. Faithful believers trust in God's promises and they follow his commands regardless of the circumstances. You know, we heard about the Backyard Bible Club this morning. Do you have a backyard? Do you have a desire? Has God told us we should share the truth with the people around us? Well, yeah, Paul, but I'm scared. Yeah, I am too. I get that. I don't like being up here. I really don't. But you know what? If we obey the Lord, he provides the wisdom, the strength, the fruit. But we have to do what he says. We have to be faithful. It's so easy to just mentally, intellectually agree to what he says, but not do it. Gaius was faithful. He did it. Verse 8 says, we ought therefore to show hospitality to such men so we may work together for the truth. Here's the thing about Gaius. From the little bit that we know, it doesn't seem that he was a pastor or a teacher or even an elder. And I don't think he was wealthy. He was probably just a regular member of the church, if there is such a thing. But God chose to highlight his work in the pages of scripture because he was faithful. And that's something that's great in God's eyes. And faithfulness, it's not only found in the big things, like going to India or China as a missionary. It's not only found in the big things, it's also found in the little things of life. Hudson Taylor was a great missionary to China and he said this, a little thing is a little thing. But faithfulness in little things is a great thing. Amen? It's faithfulness to the little things. See, we can overlook the little edge of the Bible club, but if God asked me to go to China, I'd go. Well, then why can't we host the Bible club in our backyard? Jesus said a very similar thing as Hudson Taylor this way. He said, one who is faithful in little is also faithful in much. And he told this parable about a servant and his master. 
his master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share in your master's happiness. It's the little things. Every believer will be rewarded for his faithfulness on earth. Some of that reward may come in this life as we live under the blessing of God. With obedience comes blessing. But much of it will be in eternity. It'll go far beyond any kind of blessing that we experience in this life. It'll be an eternal reward. One stormy night, there was an elderly couple who entered the lobby of a small hotel and they asked for a room. And a clerk said they were filled, as were all the hotels in town. But he said, but I can't send away a fine couple like you out in the rain. He said, would you be willing to sleep in my room? And the couple hesitated, but the clerk insisted. The next morning when the man paid his bill, he said, you're the kind of man who should be managing the best hotel in the United States. Someday, I'll build you one. Well, the clerk just smiled politely. And then a few years later, the clerk received a letter from the elderly man recalling the stormy night and asking him to come to New York. And enclosed in the letter was a round-trip ticket. And when the clerk arrived in New York, his host took him to the corner of Fifth Avenue and 34th Street, where stood a magnificent building. That, explained the man, is the hotel that I have built for you to manage. Now that man was Wildem Waldorf Astor, and the hotel he built was the original Waldorf Astoria. The young man was George C. Bolt, and he became the hotel's first manager. Guess what now sits on the site of that original Waldorf Astoria? The Empire State Building. That's where it was built originally. But Mr. Bolt, he went on to build, he was a very successful manager. He brought many innovations to the hotel. It thrived. He was considered a brilliant hotelier. And he went on to build hotels of his own. Opulent hotels. He became quite, quite wealthy and successful. And he even built this castle in New York State. This is the Bolt Castle. He built it for his wife. She passed away, but he built this for his wife. It's in the Thousand Islands area of New York. Now, if William Waldorf Astor saw something special in George Bolt, what do you think God sees in those who are faithful? In the little things. And what will be their reward? Jesus said, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory and all, the, and all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as a, separ as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, Take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger 
and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Now we know that the people on his one side said, well, Lord, when did we see you sick, hungry in prison? As much as you did it for one of the least of these. Children of mine, you did it for me. When did we teach you in Sunday school? When did we host you in our home? When did we have you over for dinner? When did we share the gospel? When you did it for one of these, you did it for me. When you were faithful in the little things of life, you did it for me. God has a great reward in store for those who are faithful. And that's what he calls us to, to faithfully walk in the truth of his word. So as we wrap this up, we began by talking about the goats, the greatest of all time. I don't know that I'll ever be that kind of goat. I'll be an old goat, but I don't think I'll be the greatest of anything. Yet true greatness is found in humbly serving others. God's idea of greatness is a lot different than the world's idea of greatness. I don't know that any of the world's greatest of all time are even on God's list. That he would say, wow, that's really great. Hockey, Gretzky, the great one. What was he in the eyes of the Lord? I don't know. God has a very different standard of greatness. It's not wrong to desire and pray for health in all areas of our lives. Physical health, social health, relational, financial health. But the priority must be our spiritual health. And all of the others flow from that. Is a big one. It's possible to have faith and yet not be faithful. We're going to see, again, an example of this in our text next week. Yet God's desire for us is that our faith matures into faithfulness. What does that look like? Well, faithfulness is obedience to the truth. This is God's desire for each of us, that we are continually walking in the truth, step by step, doing what he says. The greatest obstacle to your faithfulness is you. The greatest obstacle to my faithfulness is me. God's given us everything we need for life and godliness. He's not holding us back. He's urging us on. But we have to choose day by day to be faithful. And the result of faithfulness will be fruitfulness. Jesus said, abide in me and you will bear much fruit. Finally, every believer will be rewarded according to his faithfulness on earth. Not just his faithfulness in big things, but in little things. He who is faithful with little will be faithful with much. So what would be the next steps in faithfulness for you? What would that look like? You can't do everything at once. You can't, as they say, boil the ocean. But walking is a series of steps, one after another, intentional, purposeful, in a specific direction. What would that next step be for you this week, today? We should each consider that. What can I do this week that will make my life more faithful to the truth? And then let's choose to do it. 
Let's not just be hearers of the word. Let's do what it says to the glory of God. Amen? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, you have given us everything we need for life and godliness. You gave us your son. You gave us his life that we might have life, forgiveness, eternal life. You've given us your word. You preserved it for us. And your word is truth. And you've given us your spirit that helps us understand your word, that convicts us, that brings about, that gives us power to change. But God, we need to be willing to do so. And so as we open your word week after week and we learn more about your character, your nature, your will for us, God, I pray that we as believers would respond, that our hearts would be molded into your image, Lord, that we would want nothing more than what you want for us and nothing less. God, transform us by your truth. Help us to live faithful lives, God, that bear fruit for your kingdom. Help us to do it for your glory. And so we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.